everybody. Welcome to Making It, a weekly podcast about how to build a great business. Produced by Enterprise, your 6 a.m. briefing on finance, business, and economics in Egypt. This season is brought to you by CIB, the partner of choice for CEOs and leaders of businesses at all stages of their growth stories. By the United States Agency for International Development, which has a 40-year history of inspiring Egyptian success in partnership with the government and the people of Egypt, and by EFG Hermes, the leading financial services corporation in frontier emerging markets, helping businesses realize their full growth potential. Your host today is Patrick, Enterprise's Editor-in-Chief. Our guest today may be a stranger to some of you, but if you're listening to us in Egypt, we can guarantee that you know his business. In fact, it may be part of you, as in literally part of your bone and muscle. Jalal Abu Ghazala founded Gourmet Egypt out of necessity, and he grew it through adversity. Today, the private equity-backed business is not just an importer of luxury food items, it's a producer of high-quality ingredients and ready-to-eat meals with regional ambitions. It's one of the pioneers of online commerce in Egypt, it sells through its own stores, and it supplies hundreds of other food outlets, including brand-name restaurants and hotels. Jalal spoke with us about how to keep quality high, how to use other people's money to grow your business, and how he came back from the devaluation of the pound three years ago, an event that threatened to push his business off a cliff. Jalal, thank you for joining us here today. Well, thank you for having me. It's an honor and a pleasure. Thank you, man. Listen, this is a show about people who are building great businesses. It's not CEO therapy, but still we're going to open by talking to you about your childhood. We want to know what game or what toy or what activity did you engage in as a kid that most shaped your approach and success in business today? I was always in the kitchen and quite often I was um, uh, baking cakes with uh, a girl next door. She'd come over and we'd bake cakes together. At what age then? I think like eight, seven, eight, nine. No way. Yeah, yeah. And you were trusted in the kitchen. Well, you know, that's where it all began. That's fantastic. So was, was it always baking or... It started off with baking, but then quickly moved into steaks and into pastas and into, you know, I just love the kitchen. So listen, tell us, what is your origin story? Where did you guys come from as a business? It's a long story. I originally lived in Kuwait selling, and I was selling street sweepers until Kuwait got invaded. And I was lucky enough to get a, uh, an immigration visa to go to Australia. I arrived on the 15th of March, 1991. And the headlines in the Sydney Morning Herald were 700,000 unemployed, expected to reach a million. Oh, wow. And so I became a meat trader and uh, started trading meat. Why meat trading? I couldn't get any other job. Okay. And okay. It was a job that no prior experience was required. And there was also a bit of luck. There was an element of luck. I had a friend of my family who lived in Greece who uh, traded meat and he wanted to set up an office and I was there. And we agreed to become partners and set up a business in Australia. And as we started exporting mainly to the Gulf, my family had moved to Egypt and I thought uh, I should discover opportunities in Egypt and and when, when was that? That would have been uh, in the early 90s. We set up a business in Egypt, a distribution business in Egypt uh, with my father and my uncle, using my father's money and my uncle's connections. And we started a company that became uh, AM Foods. After many trials and you know uh, setbacks, we found our niche selling top-end meat to the five-star hotels of Egypt, starting with the opening of the Four Seasons Giza. That was our breakthrough account. And after securing that account, we became a very important supplier to 
top hotels and restaurants. The idea of gourmet came around when friends would come to my house for dinner and they were like, where'd you get this meat from? And I'm like, you know, I import it. And it's like, where, where can we buy it from? That's where the idea of gourmet was born. And I thought of selling uh, these high quality products that you couldn't find in mainstream retail. And that was the birth of gourmet. It was a, a small desk in AM Foods that would deliver slabs of sirloin that weigh seven kilos or a tenderloin that weighs, you know, three kilos. And that was the unit of sale that we would sell to consumers and no marketing, nothing. It was just like word of mouth and, you know, delivering from a freezer in the office. And that was how it started. And straight after there were like queues of people coming to the office and deliveries going out of the office. I was like, no, it's got to be flipped as a separate company with its own identity and gourmet egypt was born and that would have been 2006 when it was just a pure delivery business out of a small office in mohandesin and then the first shop opened in 2008 and where was that and that was on the ring road it was the only shop that i could find that i could open with the proper licenses and i was determined that you know when we're going to start the business it was you know everything was going to be legal and above board with all the proper licenses so it wasn't really a great location it was a destination people had to come to it and you certainly know, people they, but, from my but they came the day we opened you know the day we removed the hoarding 10 minutes later uh, a customer walked in from Madi and she was like you know like i've been driving past every day you know waiting for you to open and there was no announcement nothing and word of mouth was the best former of advertising for us. Tell me then, from that beginning in 2008, what is the company today? Well, so from 2008, we were the place where you'd get the ingredients for the special occasions. But today, we are the place where you go to whenever you think of food, because we cover now all food moments, starting from snacks, breakfast, lunch, dinner, friends coming over, entertainment. You know, any food moment is now covered in gourmet. And you do it now with both products and ingredients, right? For at least as an outsider, it seems that you've diversified away from raw ingredients yeah. by themselves to also include packaged foods. Yes, we continue supplying premium ingredients. But in addition, we've got solutions that are ready to cook, ready to eat, heat and eat on the go. We cover a much wider range of food moments. And you do this online and physically as well, right? Absolutely. The online was an integral part of the business from day one back in 2006 when we started off with the call center and the online ordering. And we've gone through like, you know, four generations of e-commerce platforms since those early days. What was the biggest challenge going online? There were so many challenges going online. To me, the online, it's like having a little shop in a huge shopping mall. And the shopping mall is like the biggest shopping mall in the world. And you've got to let people know that you're there. Mm -hmm. And then once they come and visit you, you've got to give them an experience that encourages them to come back. And uh, in those days, and even today, like e-commerce is still in its relative infancy in Egypt. So finding the talent was not that easy. We had to learn it ourselves. So tell me, Jalen, this is a show about how to build a great business. How do you define a great business? What's a great business to you? I think a great business is a business that uh, customers love. And the people that work in the business also love. And the stakeholders, suppliers, shareholders also love. Why is love a key hallmark of a great business? Don't think we could do our business without love. What we do affects people's lives. So, you know, like you are what you eat. And if you have a good meal, you're going to be happy. If you don't feel well after eating something, you're going to be very sad. So love is a really, really important 
part of it because we interact so closely with people. I mean, it's all about people, whether it's our staff or whether it's our customers. So it's got to be genuine. And if it's not genuine, you'll easily see that it's not genuine. So what are you guys building? What's the vision for Gourmet? We're the first in mind when you think of food for all occasions. And we're what people think of when you want to have something better. It's always got to be representing value for money and fair and honest. What does the business look like five years from now? I think five years from now, Gourmet will be in many, many, many more outlets and many more channels. It's a combination of physical retail outlets and the ability to order a wide range of food products for different food moments. I think it's just going to be a lot more present all over Egypt and definitely have our sites uh, outside of Egypt as well. I was going to say, is there, do you have a regional competitor? Is there a regional version of you guys anywhere else that you're aware of? There are lots of competitors and we compete with everybody, not just traditional food retailers and supermarkets. I think we compete with everybody from McDonald's to the Four Seasons. It's whenever you think of food, am I going to eat something quick and on the go? Or do I want something really luxurious like what you'd get at the Four Seasons? So I think anybody who sells food is a competitor and not just necessarily what we traditionally thought of. You guys are reasonably unusual for having built the business successfully with outside investment. You brought on Wadi Degla at one point in time as an investor. You have since had a transaction where B Investments bought them out and subscribed to a capital increase subsequent to that. So why did you go the private equity route? I didn't know when I started the business that it needed really deep pockets. So basically, we needed money to stay in business. You need to reach a certain size before the business turns profitable. And as we were growing, our financial position was improving, but the bottom line was quite red. Getting less red is a percentage of sales, but more red in absolute, in absolute, in absolute terms. terms. We could not have uh, gone on without injecting fresh money into the business. So what's the best thing about having taken outside investment? I think it's a double-edged sword. There are some really good things. It's mostly good, actually. What the investor does is ask you, what are you going to do? And doesn't really interfere with what you're going to do. A good um, investor. A good investor. And yeah. we're very lucky that we've got a great investor that really understand what we're doing and they believe in what we're doing and they believe in us. So they ask you, you know, like, what are you going to do? And a really good investor like what we've got, you know, is with you measuring what you've done relative to what you've said you're going to do and helping you look forward in a way that we never used to uh, when we were just on our own. Sometimes it might be a bit uncomfortable, but actually, in hindsight, when you go away and think about it, they were right making you think about the things that you may not have thought about when you were just on your own. What was the process like, man? How did you find B Investments and how did that process unfold? I mean, if you were speaking to another CEO who was contemplating going down the same route, how would you do, explain that to him or her? It was really a, a difficult thing because we knew that we needed an investor. But what sort of investor it was very critical because if you get the wrong investor, you're doomed, you're done. And the problem was going to the market, we were a size that was too big to be small and too small for the big to go and hire an investment bank. We were a little bit too small to be that important for them. So when B Investments called us and... So they called you. They called us and we really liked them. We liked the people. That made the process much, much easier. What type of shift in mindset happens when you go from being effectively the king of your own castle 
to a guy who's still running the castle, but somebody else owns a big chunk of it. I never really went through that transition because my father was always my partner. I didn't really have much money and he funded me. And, uh, and I remember one year he was telling me like, you're losing far too much money. And I was trying to tell him, dad, relax. Uh, as a percentage of sales, I'm losing less than I lost last year. And, you know, that conversation didn't go very well. <laughs> so thankfully, the company is in the black. And so we don't have these conversations anymore. And now it's the function of improving the performance and improving the bottom line and the efficiency and good returns on the investors. Yeah. What do you guys talk about at board meetings now? Well, we're in a big transition uh, phase. We've got a big expansion. So we're really in two businesses. One business is the, the retail and the retail shops. And the other business are the products, products that we make in our factories. And these businesses are really quite different in nature, but uh, have to work hand in hand together. And so there are a lot of investment decisions that need to be made. And having B Investments uh, sitting with us on the table as we make these decisions actually is really helpful that you've got a, another outside eye that has this, the same interests at heart. Maintainted is brought to you in association with USAID. For 40 years, the American people through USAID have invested over $30 billion to inspire Egyptian success in partnership with the government and the people of Egypt. So you have built a business through 2011, 2012, 2013, the float of the pound uh, more recently. And we could talk about challenges at any one of those stages, but I think a lot of us, we ask ourselves, is Gourmet going to survive? How did you guys survive through that period with an effective import ban, with rampant inflation, not just in your own business, but you know, in all the other businesses that were competing for a share of your customer's wallet? At the time, people stopped asking me, how are you? Really? Because they, they, assumed, they, they assumed that we were like heading off a cliff. And in fact, we were standing very close to the cliff. How close did you get? Had we not succeeded at producing this wide range of locally made products that were made to a really high quality and that customers would actually love, we would not have made it. So what actually saved us was this uh, portfolio of products that we made. We were in the kitchens. We uh, put together a really talented team. And we had to learn about food production. Yeah, and that, that's a huge pivot, right? I mean, from effectively sourcing things from other people, a lot of it imports and, and selling through to that's creating a whole new line of business. It's a whole new business altogether. Altogether. And the learning curve was we didn't really have much time to learn. And we had acquired a factory that actually had people in it. And it was a very intense period getting the culture right and getting and replacing the people whose culture didn't fit with us with people whose culture was what we stood for. I think that was the most difficult and challenging time of our lives. When did you realize it was probably going to be okay? What was the moment that made it clear to you? Probably around the period where B Investments started talking to us. It was at 2018. It was at that point when we actually felt like, no, we've got something. And the numbers started changing and the, the customer feedback was really positive. At that point, we felt like the worst is behind us. What was the singular lesson that you took away from that as a CEO? Plan for the worst and hope for the best. Okay. In those days, you could make the plans, but there were so many factors outside 
of your control that um, things would not go according to plan. So the planning was really important despite its difficulty. And the other thing was the sheer amount of effort that you'd put in. I mean, we'd start really early, work really late. You'd have to keep the team together. I've got a great team. I've got great partners. And we're also like a family business, you know, like I'm working with my wife and my brother-in-law is running, you know, the operations. It was like really like a family business that when we went home, the business came home with us. That's tough. Let's talk about products for a minute. So what's your product development cycle? Where do the ideas come from? Where do the products come from on the development side? Well, anybody can come up with an idea. Dahlia basically takes the idea. and uh, Dahlia is your wife. Dahlia is my wife. And she um, gets the culinary team together and they produce a prototype and we try it and we give it a thumbs up or a thumbs down. And then we develop the packaging and launch. We don't get 100% success rates, but we're pretty good. What's next? On the product front, what's next? Food is forever evolving. And the way we look at food is when I speak to suppliers or partners around the world and, you know, they ask me like, you know, like, what does the Egyptian consumer want? Or, you know, what do they demand? And I tell them, actually, there isn't any such thing as the Egyptian consumer become more of a global audience that we're serving because, you know, people are traveling and uh, tastes are changing. And, and so the food trends that are going on in the world, they're are really important that we keep up with them. Is it fair to say that they're a fairly affluent segment of society? I think in the early years, gourmet was, you had to be quite wealthy to go and shop at gourmet in, in the early years when everything was imported and it was all luxury products. But today, anybody that can afford to visit any coffee shop chain, international coffee shop chain or international fast food restaurant can afford to shop at gourmet. So it's not for the 1%? Not anymore. How do you find, train, and retain staff? I think the most important thing is you've got to treat them well. If you treat them well and uh, get the best out of them, they will attract like-minded people. So our people are, are a huge source of the new people that we hire that come through referrals from the people that actually work in the business. How do you teach soft skills? Soft skills are really important, and we invest a lot of time and money in that. Uh, we have a trainer whose background is professional trainer at a five-star hotel, and he's a full-time trainer at Gourmet. And so there are training programs practically every day. Do you track employee turnover? Absolutely. You know, in an industry where the turnover is relatively high, I think we're very proud of the low turnover numbers that we have. Let's talk about numbers for a moment then. As CEO, what are the five KPIs that you follow most closely to tell you something about the health of your business? Obviously, um, sales and sales by store and, and margins are really important uh, KPIs, but uh, equally important are complaints and how complaints were handled. It's not just the complaint report that I get that's uh, important, but the resolution of the complaints that have been previously reported, uh, I would say, are the most important things. How have you built the brand? With a lot of effort and a lot of love. The brand has naturally evolved, and it's really a reflection of the character of us that work in the business. We, we want to do everything in the best way possible, and there's always room for improvement. So we never say that we're the best, and we never say that this is the best. It's always we do our best and come to work every day and think, mm -hmm. how can we make it better? Where do people touch your brand outside the stores? Because I don't see a large volume of advertising. And yet, there's an undeniable character to the brand that people can quantify and touch and feel. 
we're very lucky that a lot of the touch points are in people's fridges and in uh, in their friends' homes, and we do most of our advertising is online. Our marketing budget is relatively tight. Let's talk about quality for a second. How do you maintain quality in a market where the average person will tell you something starts out great, and the moment it starts to scale, the quality starts to slip? It has to be measured. What's not measured is not managed. As the business has, has evolved, we've developed measuring tools. I mean, how do you measure freshness or the quality of piece of meat or you know, the taste of a yogurt? The quality team at Gourmet is quite big and it extends to the warehouses and the factories and the outlets. So starting with receiving of any product, whether it's raw material or finished goods, there are checks that take place at receiving. And then there are temperature checks take place during the day in you know everywhere where temperature sensitive products are stored. A lot of uh, safety systems built in to guaranteeing the uh, you know the safety and the quality of the product. You folks sent out a notice recently about Gourmet going green. What does that mean? The environment is on everybody's mind, and everybody's got to do their part in improving the environment. What can you guys do as a company? What are the initiatives that are going to move the needle in that respect? Well, the initiatives are going to be educating our staff and educating consumers and reducing as much as we can single-use plastic. So one of the things that we will be doing is the free plastic bags or even the free paper bags that you get will become something of a past and will be phased out with time as they have been in many parts of Europe and Australia and the U.S. As we start to wrap up, I would love to know what one piece of advice you would go back in time to give yourself when you were just starting out. Definitely, I would have invested more time in the plan. A good plan has a better chance of succeeding, and I sort of dived into it without a really clear plan. I would advise anybody investing in any business to invest more time in planning and research and then just do it how do you plan what's your process do you sit down at night Uh, are you a morning person with a whiteboard do you need to go off on vacation and come back and be inspired what's your planning process like a big part of my planning process is education i'm really lucky that i i've got connections all around the world in many different industries so I lean on my contacts uh, around the world to guide me uh, for advice or point me in the direction of expertise. And then I take that expertise and filter it and use that knowledge in looking at my plan and making sure that, that my plan is a good plan. How do you encourage inclusion and diversity in your business? We're an all-inclusive company and we have absolutely no tolerance for any form of discrimination, whether religious, whether gender discrimination, whether physical discrimination, absolutely, it is zero tolerance and everybody knows it. And I think this automatically creates an environment and a culture of inclusion and we're very proud of it. Do you track a ratio of male to female managers or within staff or religious diversity in the workplace, anything like that? We don't actually track the numbers, but I actually see them. So, you know, every management meeting has quite a few women. They are in positions that they're in because they're the best at what they do. And I'm very proud of, 
you know, all the men and women and all the different religions. We are one human family and you don't choose what you are when you're born. So we should all love each other and, you know, and live, live happily together. Another question that we are asking all guests, sir, is why would I buy a share in Gourmet? What's the investment thesis for you? I think when you buy a share, you want to achieve two things. You want to buy a share in an ethical company whose products you like. But at the end of the day, you also want to achieve an attractive return on your investment. And I think Gourmet offers both. Will we see Gourmet shares traded on the GX in the future? I think that's very possible. What is the one question, sir, that I have not asked you that you would have liked to have been asked? How come you left Australia and moved to Egypt? (laughs) Why did you leave Australia and move to Egypt? The foreigner asks the foreigner. It was a misunderstanding with my Egyptian wife. I thought she was marrying me for my Australian passport and that we were going to live in Australia. And she thought I was marrying her so I could live in Egypt. And I discovered that after we got married, when I told her, come on, let's go. And she's like, go where? And I said, you know, I live in Australia. She's like, no, you didn't tell me we're going to live there. And that was 20 years ago. Making It is produced by Enterprise, your morning briefing on business, finance and economics in Egypt. Subscribe today for free at enterprise.press. Did you like today's episode? Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever else you get your shows. Did you love today's episode? Like us or give us a five-star rating and a review to help others discover us. Next week's episode will be out on Friday at 10 a.m. This season is brought to you by CIB, EFG Hermes, and USAID. That's how we're making it.